Hello there, and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up, it's attorney, author, and church teaching pastor Randy Singer. He talked with me recently about his latest novel, which deals with aspects of the war on terror. You'll be hearing some of his insight. Then it's Pat Schatz's line of Remnant Ministries International, calling believers out of a life of comfort into a transformed life of revival. Plus, it's author Michelle Phoenix. She ministers to the children of missionaries and others who have spent significant time in other countries, and she writes novels. Her latest features a main character who is seeking for meaning in her life after surviving the Paris terror attacks. And on this edition of The Intersection, we can be challenged to continue to be mindful of the plight of the storm victims in Houston and surrounding areas. You'll be hearing some content from a recent report from Jack Monday of the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team. Then it's filmmaker John Irwin. He's involved in the forthcoming one-night theatrical event, a documentary film exploring the salvation story of actor Steve McQueen, featuring pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie. Finally, it's Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, challenging policymakers to take a scientific approach to matters of climate change rather than just believing and buying into one highly politicized view. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Randy Singer is an attorney, an author, and teaching pastor at Trinity Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He's written a number of legal novels, including his latest, Rule of Law, exploring some aspects of the war on terror, including matters of morality and values, posing questions about the president, whoever holds the position, and his or her handling of foreign affairs relative to the rule of law. This is Randy Singer now. I get a lot of my inspiration for books out of real life. I have the advantage that a lot of authors don't, that I actually practice law, have an ongoing you know, law firm and uh, practice. And, and Bob, what really struck a chord with me is I, I've been representing clients recently on anti-terrorism cases. And I represented a, a two clients that were captured by the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and they were accused of being CIA agents when they were not. One tried to escape and was killed by the Houthis, and the other, after six months, was released. And so this book, Rule of Law, looks at the way we fight the war on terrorism. It starts with the Navy SEALs. I I live in Virginia Beach, and I pastor a church here, Bob, so you know some of our congregants are Navy SEALs, and I I think so highly of these uh, young men that are so courageous and put their lives on the line for our freedoms. And so the book starts with this uh, mission from SEAL Team 6 into Yemen to uh, set free a couple political prisoners. And the mission goes bad, and then the question becomes, did the president know that the mission was going to go bad, and was, was the president just using the military for political purposes? And that kind of sets up the, the whole framework for rule of law. And, and really the big question behind this book, which is so relevant for our time, is the president above the law, or is the president just like all the rest of us and subject to the rule of law? And Randy, obviously your approach to writing as your approach to law is governed by the scriptures. So talk about how your Christian faith and faith principles are actually integrated into this book, Rule of Law. Well, what I try to do with my faith principles is I try to make it a natural part of the story. I don't want somebody to come away from my book, which is a, you know, I, I like to write fairly complex plots, so my books are 400 pages long. I don't want somebody to come away and say, man, I just read a 400-page sermon. <laughs> I, I, but I want them to feel like the spiritual elements 
are you know are part of this story. And in my experience uh, with the with the young uh, warriors that I know, a lot of our special forces operators. They have a very deep spiritual side, and you don't put yourself in harm's way the way they do and not think about, you know, is, is there something, if I die, what happens to my soul, and is there someone protecting me, and, you know, is it okay to pray or not pray? There's no atheist in foxholes, right? And so this spiritual side of our special forces is there, but also their families and the great sacrifice that they make, uh, that's, that's a part of it as well. And so some of my characters are believers, some of my characters are not believers. They're all dealing with these life and death issues in their own ways. And I think that's a natural part of life. And I think authors who write books and ignore the spiritual element of things are actually writing a more artificial story than those of us who try to weave those in naturally. And I think about our nation's morality, these wonderful principles consistent with the scriptures upon which our nation has been founded. So in looking at terrorism, counterterrorism initiatives and such, the activities that we're involved in as a nation, and you factor in our national morality, where do you see areas that our morality might be on the verge of being sacrificed uh, in the prosecution of this war on terror? Yeah, I think our morality is always going to be sacrificed, Bob, if our foreign policy is not based on bedrock principles as opposed to expediency. And so what do I mean by that? You know, you don't hear a lot of talk these days about why are we in this country or that country or this other country? Why are we in Afghanistan right now? Why are we helping in this war against ISIS in Iraq? You know, what is our role in in a lot of these Mideast countries? And we have to pull back to I think a couple kind of overriding principles. One is we always have to protect strategic American interests. There's there's no question about that. That's just the sovereignty of our country and our own survival at stake. But we also ought to be about uh, democracy. We ought to be about freedom of religion, and we ought to to be about freedom from religious persecution. And I think that those you don't hear much discussion about those last things when it comes to what wars we're fighting and what wars we're not fighting. Randy Singer here on the intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website randysinger.net. The intersection continues now with evangelist Pat Schatzline, co-founder along with wife Karen of Remnant Ministries International. In a recent conversation, he discussed the book that he and Karen wrote together called Rebuilding the Altar, A Bold Call for a Fresh Encounter with God. Here now from that conversation is Pat Schatzline. The entire book is a journey, and I tell people, you know, sometimes authors have other people write their books, they take their sermons, and they put them in the books. Karen and I, if I, if I can start from this point, on October 3rd of 2016, which is 5777 in the Jewish New Year, it's the Feast of Trumpets in the Jewish calendar, for, for those that follow that type of thing out there. Uh, that day, I get the, we get the email. Our publisher wants us to write the book. Immediately, when we started to write the book, Bob, that day, I lost my voice for six weeks. It was the craziest thing. My daughter, uh, we found out, was losing her hearing. My wife got sick. It was the craziest thing. So we just trudged through and began to write the book. And when we got into the part where I began to say, you know, really the burden for this is, I think in a lot of places, we have learned to do church without the encounter. 
It's a great social gathering. It's a great coming together. We've got great coffee bars. We've got all that stuff, and that's awesome. That's awesome. We've made it comfortable. But the problem is, when we begin to write that, the burden for this book was that we are no longer giving the invite for people to have encounters with God. And I've had people say to me, well, there's no altar calls in the Bible. Well, really, because uh, when we write the chapter about the family in the book, the greatest altar call to me in the New Testament was when the father went and tackled the son in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal. But from cover to cover, God's word is about redemption. Man searched to get to God. The first altar was Noah's ark. Noah lands after 370 days, one man saved from the flood on Mount Ararat. He's so high up, there's no trees. Something of him grabbed the moment, and he decided to make an altar. It had never been done before. He pulls the doors off the ark. God comes close and has compassion. The dichotomy of that, the other side of that is Jesus, one man who gave his life for all humanity. Out of his belly comes rivers of living water. One man who became the doorway. And then Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 13 says he became the altar. Well, what does that have to do with where the altar is gone? We must give people a place to have an encounter. And when I talk about the altar, I'm not just talking about a piece of physical wood, or although I have one in my house and friends of ours uh, have them in the house. And now we give them to people as gifts. Karen and I do. We launched myfamilyaltar.com because we wanted people to put altars in their home. In fact, we're probably going to be putting one in the White House because I serve on the prayer team uh, for the, the nation. But it isn't even about a piece of wood. It's about where has the encounter gone? Have we learned to do church without a move of God? And so that's what that whole chapter was. Really, it was the clarion cry from my heart and from Karen's heart of saying, what are we doing? Uh, I don't, we don't need plastic surgery hospitals. We need emergency rooms. <laughs> mm. We need people to get delivered from the lies of the enemy. And so that's where that original chapter came from. One of the things that I, I believe with all my heart is that we, in the church, we are really good at worshiping Jesus before the cross and resurrection works, uh, loving people, doing miracles. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to become our altar, to become our lamb. But back to your question, and I mean, that was the awesomeness of the heart of Christ, love one another, all of that. And the church has done so well with that, because maybe in the, the two or three decades ago, we were so intense on repentance or so intense on, you know, getting the, the, the place of change that we forgot how to love people. So then we've gone the other shift of serve people, love people. That's amazing. What I see in the church is I see people are awakening to hunger again. They're going, wait a minute. I love everything we've done with church. We serve the city. We clean. We, we uh, embrace. We love. But what I see the church doing, I personally, and Karen does too, we see an awakening where people are saying, you know, Karen wrote a chapter in the book called I Am Revival, meaning I don't have to go to a revival. I am revival. Romans eight eleven. Mm-hmm. Christ's spirit lives inside of me. I'm a mobile upper room. So what we see in the church is people saying, it's awesome the route we've gone, the excellence we've created. But excellence without anointing is just a club. We need the anointing of God to come in and set people free. So I'm seeing it across the world. 
Pat Schatzline here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website, rebuildingthealtar.com. Michelle Phoenix is a novelist who ministers to children of missionaries and others who have lived extensively outside the U.S. Recently, she shared with me about the plot and concept of her book, The Space Between Words, in which the main character is searching for meaning in her life. Here now is Michelle Phoenix. Third culture kid is a broader term that includes MKs, but it's any person who has spent a significant number of their formative years in a culture other than their passport culture. So that would include military kids, diplomats kids, business kids. But the reason that I really focus on MKs is because some of the challenges that arise from living in such a, a transient world, some of those are spiritual. And I've known far too many adult MKs that I've encountered who have actually abandoned their faith God, ministry, all, anything included under that umbrella because of the challenges, the unresolved challenges that come from growing up MK. And some of those are just, I say just, but it's enormous, the number of goodbyes we have to say hmm. as we grow up on the mission field where people are constantly coming and going. And, and either it could be medical reasons, it could be security reasons, it could be financial reasons, or family back home who suddenly needs needs the help of their children. And and so these MKs get the sense, if it's not clearly explained to them, they get the sense that they are being dragged around the globe and forced into all these huge transitions because each move is the loss of a universe to children, right? And they get the sense that this is all happening to them because of God, because God called. And for people like me who grew up in, in similar circumstances, I started to wonder who this God was. And to assume, because of what I was experiencing, and in my case, there was trauma as well that happened on the mission field, because of what I was experiencing, I started to assume that God was just interested in the work my parents were doing, um, and that the children who were kind of the collateral damage did not matter to him, and that his only goal in creating humans was for us to work for him and to somehow earn his blessing by the kind and amount of work that we were doing in his name. And as you can imagine, that was extremely detrimental to my faith, to my outlook on the world, and to my relationship with the concept of missions. I think as sad as it is, because there's so much work to be done on the mission field, sometimes unintentionally we send the message that God is more our boss or our taskmaster than somebody with whom we're supposed to have a relationship. And that's what, what helped me to turn the corner, is understanding that we were created for relationship with him, not to work for him and not to, you know, expand the work that he was already doing, but he created human beings for relationship with him. And I had to completely, for, for a while, for a, for a season of my life, I had to disengage from the term calling and from the to-do list that seems to come along with salvation and engage instead in just figuring out what God's heart was. Mm. And as I discovered more about who he is, it became more difficult for me, almost impossible for me to continue to see him as the tyrant, the heartless tyrant who just demands more. And I began to see him as a source of comfort, as a source of uh, company in those moments when you feel isolated and lonely, and to see him as, as a person that I depended on rather than um, a tyrant that I worked for. And that really was significant in my life. What would you mm -hmm. say would be the concept or what you really wanted to communicate in this particular book? I wanted to talk about God and pain, and where is God in the trauma and pain that this world is experiencing. And because of that, I begin the book in my home country, in Paris, 
um, at the at on the date of the attacks, the terrorist attacks that hit both the um, soccer stadium there and a cafe and this concert hall. And it begins in the concert hall as a woman lives through something that is absolutely unimaginable and then tries to move on with life and to make sense of what she's experienced and, and ask the question of how how can there be a good God and people like these innocent victims be slaughtered the way that they were. And I don't think the book, I know the book is not intended to give an answer to why do we suffer, but I hope it gives an answer to where is God as we're suffering. Michelle Phoenix here on The Intersection. Find out more at her website. It's Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, phoenix.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, on the weekend on which this podcast is being released, residents of Florida and really surrounding areas are keeping their eyes on Hurricane Irma. Jack Monday, International Director of the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team, shared an update with me recently on the work of that ministry designed to bring comfort in the midst of disasters in the South Texas region affected by Hurricane and Tropical Storm Harvey. From that conversation, this is Jack Monday. I would say that, number one, um Every disaster is different, although we have deployed to hurricanes and cyclones and tornadoes and other natural disasters in the past, but it's different because it's different people that are affected. It's different lives that are turned upside down. So this is a very personal uh, disaster as it affects so many people's lives. Um, To take a step back, what we see are uh, dreams that have been shattered, uh, people in shock, uh, some in despair, uh, some uh, many in fear, not knowing what they're going to find when they go back to their house. If they've been evacuated, uh, we're even learning there are people that are still being rescued uh, in the Houston area. Um, so th- this is, uh, it takes us back in, in some ways back to the days of Hurricane Katrina, but Uh, I've even heard it said that this could be more devastating in scope um, because the range has hovered and hovered and hovered as it did. But we never want to compare one disaster to another because we don't want to compare one person's suffering to another. But this is uh, devastating, and um, a lot of ministry, uh, a lot of uh, help is needed. Uh, it, it's just encouraging to see the people in Texas responding the way they are to help their neighbors. But, you know, when you're in the middle of it, uh, for example, there's more than 200 uh, first responders in the Houston area who have lost their homes. Uh, th- this goes down to so many different levels on a personal level. Uh, photographs of, of grandparents and, and, and memories and vacations that will never be recovered uh no insurance uh i heard last night that it could be as many in the houston area as 80 percent 
of homeowners uh, did not have flood insurance. And so uh, this is going to be a, a long-term recovery, but there will be recovery. And, uh, and we're thankful that God has allowed us. It's very humbling to be a part of the recovery as we even today uh, offer that emotional and spiritual care uh, through our crisis-trained chaplains. When people were in their darkest hour of having someone who's properly trained, uh, as our chaplains are, to uh, talk with them, part of our mission is to also know what resources are available in the area so we can share that with a homeowner to help them to know where they can get assistance and help. And so uh, it, it's, it's about praying with people, but, you know, we have to meet people right where they are. And where, where is their greatest need at the moment? And, and that's where our chaplains come in because they've deployed to disasters uh, not only throughout the U.S., they've deployed to disasters around the world. And so they, they understand the whole area of, uh, of trauma, of grief, uh, to know that people are different places of grief. Uh, some people are, uh, are angry. Uh, some people are bargaining with God right now. God, if my house is spared, I promise I will serve you in the mission field wherever you want me to go. You know, I mean, I think we've all probably tried to bargain with God one time or another in our life. It may have been on an exam, you know, or a test in college. But the point is uh, our chaplains meet people right where they are, and, uh, and we are there to serve them, to support them, uh, to encourage them and to uh, help them at this time that could be their darkest hour. And, 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 you know, and that's for everyone, whether they know Christ or they don't know Christ. This is a difficult time. But yet sometimes our, our mission, too, is reminding people in, in this time that's so dark what they had learned in the light, to know that God's faithful and that he loves them, that he'll never leave them or forsake them in the midst of a broken world and in their case, a flooded home. Mm. Jack Monday of the Billy Graham Rapid Response Team here on the Intersection Podcast. You can learn more at the website, billygram.org. Filmmaker John Irwin spoke with me recently. He is the director of Steve McQueen, American Icon, a documentary film to be presented in a one-night theatrical event on September 28th. In our conversation, he discussed the subject matter of the film, including actor McQueen's conversion to Christianity late in life and pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie's involvement in the project. From that conversation, this is John Irwin. Greg is a dear friend of mine and uh, really, um, you know, America's evangelist now and, uh, and just a really cool guy. And I remember, you know, my journey with the film is I was down at uh, the Southern California uh, crusade that he had. I was involved with the, um, uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge a little bit, the marketing of it. And, and, uh, and Mel was down there being interviewed and, um, we were all standing around. I, I was sitting with, with them. Uh, and Greg started telling Mel about this story that I had never heard, uh, about the conversion of Steve McQueen, that this, the, the biggest movie star in the world of his day, the highest paid movie star in the world, that he had left the industry and gone on the spiritual quest and, and, and found his faith and, and really found the meaning and peace and happiness that he had looked for all his life and couldn't find it anywhere, you know, society um, uh, says uh, happiness is. You know, we, we all kind of live under that lie 
that, you know, if we just had wealth and fame, we'd be happy. If we just won the lottery, we'd be happy, you know. And here's a guy that checked all those boxes um, and uh, and wasn't happy. And, uh, and, and yet when he found his face, uh, those closest to this, this was the, the happiest he, he was in his life. And so fascinating story. And I remember Greg shared half of it and walked around the room and then, you know, Mel tapped him on the shoulder and said, share the, share the that story. And I was kind of <laughs> right over the other shoulder listening. Like, this is amazing. We were prepping to film. I can only imagine at the time. So it was a diversion. It wasn't something that we were looking for, but the story was so intriguing and, you know, I remember watching The Great Escape with my dad growing up and and um, and huge McQueen fan. Mel, uh, Greg Laurie is an incredible um, McQueen fan, as is, as is Mel. And uh, Greg has gone so far as to have a replica of the bullet car, bullet Mustang. And come to find out, Greg's childhood is, is nearly identical. The first, you know, 12, 15 years of his life and McQueen's life are almost beat for beat identical. And... Uh, they face the same pain. They face the same abandonment, uh, you know, the same abuse and the same struggles in life. So I think that's probably why Greg resonated with this story so much. And so he called me uh, the day after that event and said, hey, we got to make a documentary of this story. I'm, I'm prepping to get to go film a movie. And uh, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, sometimes the best ideas in life come at the worst possible time, <laughs> but it was worse. It was worth it. And, uh, and so we, as soon as we got, I can only imagine in the can, we set out to discover this story and documentaries are discovered and, uh, and to, to find the truth. And, um, and what we found far exceeded, uh, our expectations and even, uh, it ended up that even a recording of McQueen, a conversation with McQueen two weeks before he died, where he truly confessed his faith and, and told, said that I want the world to know what's happened to me and the change that's happened in my life. Um, we discovered this tape, and no one has ever heard it. Oh my goodness! Uh, which is, which is, it blows my mind. How in the world has this stayed buried for forty years? So in many ways, this documentary is fulfilled one of the dying wishes of Steve McQueen. And uh, it's just a very cool thing to be a part of. And I think it's very entertaining. I think it's very accessible, no matter what you believe. And in many ways, it really is the first complete documentary of Steve McQueen's story. You know, just this, this, the end of his life has just never been covered. And, um, and so it really is a cradle to grave look at this American icon and, and this underdog story of grit and determination and success and then emptiness and uh and then and then what really fulfills that and it does ask a profound question you know it asks what really makes you happy in life and that's a question that we all ask and and that we all i think wonder about it right john Irwin here on the intersection learn more at steve mcqueen movie.com Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Calvin Beisner, founder and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which offers a biblical approach to environmental issues. In our conversation, he shared about a variety of topics related to climate change, including the relationship of climate change or global warming to hurricanes and the EPA's approach to matters of climate change, utilizing discussion from multiple perspectives of the issue. Here now from that conversation is Calvin Beisner. 
We're not only exaggerating human influence, but I think we're also exaggerating uh, in the media and in politics. We're exaggerating the extent to which we can really do anything about it. Uh, you brought up the Paris Climate Agreement, and of course, uh, President Trump announced on June 1 that we are withdrawing from that. Uh, it's not a done deal. It's a three-and-a-half-year process to get out of it, and there are pitfalls all along the way. So uh, those who support his decision should uh, keep his feet to the fire, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, this is a great example of how people uh, think that we can do more than we really can. Even assuming that human influence on global average temperature is as big through carbon dioxide emissions as the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and those who negotiated the Paris Climate Treaty uh, think it is, even assuming that, full implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement by all countries in the world that signed it would only reduce global average temperature in the year 2100 by about three-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. And the cost of all of that implementation is estimated to run somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two trillion dollars per year. That's trillion, mm. a capital T, right? Uh, wow. In other words... By the end of the century, we'd have paid somewhere in the neighborhood of 23.3 to 46.6 trillion dollars for every tenth of a degree Fahrenheit of temperature reduction. And that three tenths of a degree Fahrenheit temperature reduction in, in global average temperature would have no uh, no consequences whatsoever for any ecosystem or for human well-being. And that's one reason why I think it's not surprising that the author of the book, The Art of the Deal, recognized it as a very bad deal. I want to take a, a look at something that you wrote. It was last week for The Washington Times as an op-ed piece. This has to do with the approach to so-called climate change that uh, apparently is being advocated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Of course, its new secretary is Scott Pruitt. And tell me just a bit about what you see as far as Pruitt's approach and what you would join him in recommending with respect to this whole area of climate change. For the last couple of decades, really, not just the Obama administration, but under past administrations, um, the U.S. government treatment of the whole subject of climate change and climate research has been dominated by people who are completely committed to the notion that human activity is driving catastrophically bad uh, global warming. And so the vast majority of the scientific research paid for and, and informing the various different federal agencies has been very much on that alarmist bent. Well, what, uh, what Administrator Scott Pruitt wants to do is to institute what our military already does in a lot of situations. It's called red team, blue team. And what that means is that uh, when, when they're studying in the military, when they're studying uh, a particular strategic idea about how to deal with a possible enemy, uh, one team sets forth its proposed strategy, and then another team of equally qualified, equally funded uh, experts does its best to tear that recommendation to pieces and show all that's wrong with it. 
Um, well, that's really of the essence of scientific kind of work. Skepticism is the very heart and soul of science. So what, uh, what Pruitt wants to do is to institute red team, blue team process in the EPA. Uh, and the result would be that you'd have one team of scientists uh, working, paid for by the federal government, uh, presenting the case for catastrophic anthropogenic global warming, and another team of equally well-qualified, equally well-funded scientists working to show the problems in that. And the result of that really is to, to keep the science honest. Uh, we've had just one political perspective dominating for the last 20 years or so. It's really time to hear from the other side and to see that the access to government funding doesn't predetermine the outcome which is what has happened before. So I think that's a great idea. Uh, that's why I supported it in my op-ed, and that's why we've supported it also at Cornwall Alliance. Cal Beisner here on The Intersection. Find out more at cornwallalliance.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center through that site. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for another edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.